was a womanizer and a shyster. <laughs> and his current girlfriend at the time na named, well, I call her Lola. She's a Cuban bombshell with no brain. <laughs> and although she does say one thing that's kind of intelligent, which shocks the hell out of me. <laughs> and I think, oh, and Psycho Gill. That's my uncle, my other uncle, who has issues, psychological issues, which is why he's called Psycho Gill. Okay, so this is my prologue. The last time my father calls is shortly before the anniversary of his disbarment to tell me he's just cheated death. On his end, there's background noise, a restaurant, a bar, somewhere far sleazier. Since the divorce, he licks his wounds at a topless strip club in Garden Grove called the Catnip. This malacca in a ski mask tried to carjack me. He had a gun to the window and told me to get out of my own goddamn car. My father slows down, hanging on to the moment, as if speaking to a jury. But I gave him the finger and backed the hell out of there. Considering my father's Greek temper, it doesn't surprise me that he flipped off a gunman before thinking of the possible consequences. Carjacking a middle-aged man for his old diesel Mercedes seems beyond desperate. More like a junkie looking for an easy mark. The days when my father tipped big from a money clip of C-notes in his pocket are gone, along with his law license. Now he carries ones and fives to slip under the G-strings of his favorite girls at the catnip. You're lucky he didn't kill you, I say. If death, did, if death didn't get him in the form of an actual bullet, it could have gotten him from shock. Pramus men are known for strong minds and weak hearts. My grandfather died at 59, my father's age. I hear it in his voice. For once, my father sounds scared. As his daughter, the one child out of three who stuck around, I stay on the line. I listen. It's what I've always done. Where were you, I ask? From my Uncle Dimitri, I've learned my father has seen a burlesque dancer, known as Sugar Brown. She lives in Compton, the neighboring city of Linwood, where my father grew up. In the parking lot at the bicycle club, with the card casino security cameras and well-lit lots, the evidence is stacked against him. He's lying. After more than two decades spent as a defense attorney, heatedly released releasing himself and his clients of any wrongdoing, my father is cool to the truth. I doubt he'd even know how to recognize it. Look, he starts, that isn't why I called, Paula girl. It isn't? I know you're in love. Things are all good and well. That's great. My father huffs, always the lawyer, leading up to his point. Just don't let him make you lose sight of what you really want. He's referring to my fiancé, Jim, whom he recently met at dinner. Right after the salads were served and before Jim came back from the restroom, my father told me he saw the signs. The signs that instead of warning me away, only drew me closer. Be careful, Paula girl. I like him. And it doesn't really matter that he's older and already has kids. But his face is bloated. He's an alcoholic. Things trouble him too much. That's probably why his first marriage broke up. I take the cordless phone into the family room where I check the cuckoo clock, a rather obnoxious engagement gift from my father, suggesting I'm crazy for wanting to marry this guy. <laughs> we live in Lake Arrowhead, over an hour's drive from the catnip, and that's exactly where he's at because I hear the DJ announcing Naughty Natalie, the next girl up on stage, with classic Billy Idol belting out, 
in the midnight hour. She wants more, more, more. <laughs> After another five minutes, I'll come up with an excuse. A late dinner I need to cook, or a moonlit walk to the water with my fiancé. Jesus, Dad, I say, so what if I love him? It's not like I've had a lobotomy. Jim sits in the other room, chasing down a half pint of Smirnoff with a Killian's Irish Red. Too sensitive for his own good, he is a writer, my former professor. My father's summation of him is dead on. Alcohol only makes Jim feel more, and if he catches me talking so bluntly about him, he might la launch into a rant or just the opposite and begin to cry. My father laughs at my lobotomy crack. Sarcasm has always been our private language. It's how we reach out to each other. Okay, okay, just promise me you won't get knocked up. You'll get your degree first. As soon as a woman gets barefoot and pregnant, she's vulnerable. My father is proud that I've been accepted to graduate school, where I'll earn a Master's of Fine Arts degree. At this point in time, I'm only 29 and changing careers. Instead of high school with its juvenile detention slips and parent-teacher conferences, I'll be covering Chekhov, Hemingway, and Morrison to adults in college. Not only am I the child that stayed after my mother left, I'm also the one who has followed in his footsteps by pursuing an education. I'll be the first professor in the family. My father talks like he knows something I don't, and it bothers me. He couldn't be more wrong. Who said I wanted a kid anyway? Jim already has three. Don't worry, Dad, I'm off the hook. Just as I'm hanging up, Jim comes into the room. He shakes his head. Why don't you ever say goodbye? He's your father. <laughs> we never do. It's just our way. How we speak to each other may be unclear to Jim, but I'm only too aware of the change in my father's voice and what I've just done by making him this promise. By breaking away from my father, I'm somehow breaking him. Many would argue he's been broken for some time, both financially and morally. Over a million dollars of his client's money is missing. What can be accounted for had been invested in speculative ventures, undeveloped property in Hawaii and Nevada, a horse farm in Tennessee, 13 purebreds, all in my father's name to protect his clients from liability. The State Bar Review Board didn't buy it, and in revoking his license, a generous judge found my father had committed acts of moral turpitude, instead of calling it for what it is, embezzlement. After I read the ruling on the State Bar's website, I looked up the word turpitude in the dictionary and found beside the definition synonyms like vileness, depravity, shame. For any more information, it's suggested I look up the word evil. <laughs> My father maintains he did nothing improper. He had power of attorney. Although I have my doubts, I know for certain his conduct was no more or less moral than other lawyers who distort the truth to suit their own ends. For better or worse, I am a shyster's daughter, and regardless of my father's guilt, I will defend him. Even now, after years of struggling to come to terms with what happened that, that night, his phone call replays over and over in my head. He expected me to keep my promise of not getting pregnant, but unlike his word, mine can always be trusted. His timing can't be ignored. What he saw as a wake-up call is a warning of another kind. And less than eight hours after that phone call, my father was found dead. Ooh, that got me. Okay, and then my other section, let me find it, that was gonna rain. I thought I marked it. 
Okay. Um, this is from the chapter titled, Like Marrow. From the faculty parking lot, I hear being announced over and over on the PA system that I have a personal phone call. Anybody close to me would use my cell, not the line in the administration office of the high school where I'm teaching. This is what I know. It is what I fear. In my rush, I forget my morning coffee, leaving it on the roof of the car. Whoever is waiting for me wants me in a public place before bearing the bad news. At first, I think it's my fiance who's hurt or worse. He's drinking again and has jammed his BMW against a tree, or he's been thrown in jail for a DUI. Paula, she says, Lucia, my friend, is crying too hard for it to be a man she's only met a couple of times. You need to drive over to my place. What's happened? Please, Paula, she says, don't ask me that. You need to get over here. I'm frustrated at her for putting us in a tragic scene straight out of a soap opera. How can I when I don't even know who it is? My emphasis on who prompts the secretary to make a break for the break room. She knows before me too. Lucia is sobbing like I did that afternoon when my mother left and I'm afraid of the sound she's making. We've been best friends since the eighth grade. Hurting me doesn't come easily for her. Your dad is dead. The power of those words drained the strength from the backs of my legs and I collapse like one of those Middle Eastern widows seen keening on the evening news over her fallen husband or son, his face or another body part blasted clear off. My purse and contents of my book bag hit the floor too. Student essays, grade book, my egg McMuffin from McDonald's I was planning on eating a couple minutes ago. With the receiver in one hand, I can't think of how to clean up my things with the other. I can't think past, my father is dead. Efficiency works around me like it would in any office. The secretary, back with a fresh cup of coffee, has already called for a substitute to fill in for me. And somebody, a counselor who deals with the difficult cases, is on her knees patting my back. My pain, not unlike a gravely ill child, is too much even for a professional to watch. The woman looks away from me, wiping her eyes. Barely listening, I think of another call, my father's from last night at the strip club. Some ghetto thug had pointed a gun at him, and now he was dead. Why hadn't I insisted he go to the cops? Why hadn't I tried harder? Maybe he would have made it home. I see my father's body doubled over at the wheel. I see his chest and arms spilling out of the car, his head dangling, blood seeping out from the wet hole in his scalp. I'm about to be sick. I open my eyes so I won't be. Was he shot? Shot. Did somebody kill him? No, I think it was a heart attack. Your uncle found him. She means the man who tried to molest me. There is resentment, there is rage, like there always is whenever Psycho Gill is mentioned. I use these hard feelings to hold it together long enough to end the call, to gather my things, find a table, and write notes to my sub. None of what I've just heard adds up, yet I find some purpose in laying out what I do know, the lesson plans my students will follow in my absence. Five days paid leave is how much time I'll receive to mourn the man I've spent nearly 30 years of my life loving. Uncle Dimitri is in a hurry to bury my father. He's made this no secret. Inside of a couple hours, with my father's body still at the coroner's office, he set up an appointment at the funeral home. Chapel of Remembrance is a few exits down from Yaya's house. 
off the 91 freeway in Artesia, the same city where my father's client, murder, murder suspect Broad Garada, bought the gun he blew away his boss with. We've taken Uncle Dimitri's car with Yaya, Jim, and me in the back seat. My fiancé has tried to calm me, not just with words of comfort or his arm clamped around my shoulders, but with Valium that he pushed on me when he picked me up at Lucia's apartment. As someone who has relied on drugs to numb himself from deep emotional pain, he can't stand to see mine raw and at the surface. I have him worried. Grief has given me a tolerance unknown to a lightweight. My body has so far fought off two of the powerful little pills. In order to tend to my needs, Jim has gone stone cold sober. Psycho Gil remains at the house to feel calls and stay away from me. I have questions. Because he isn't here, I direct them at Yaya. As the only other person in the house when my father was found, she knows things. Like what was Psycho Gil doing in my father's room before dawn? Did my father make a noise? Was he in pain? How long had he lain there dying? Was it his heart or an attack of another kind? Yaya wouldn't know, presumably out of concern for her well-being. By the time she reached the room, her son's body was covered in a sheet. She lets it slip that even more time passed between Psycho Gill finding my father dead and when one of them dialed 911. Coffee was made and the two of them got dressed. Gill didn't see the rush. He said your father was cold to the touch, she explains, as if this makes perfect sense. Did he even try and revive him? What I say, or maybe how I say it, causes Jim to take his arm off my shoulders and pull out another tiny pill from the tin foil in his pocket. Take it dry, he says in my ear. Please, baby, have another one for me. It's a simple question, I say to Jim and everybody else in the car who have all grown quiet. Paula, Paula, Uncle Dimitri cuts in. None of that's important now. Let's just take care of one thing at a time. When it comes to Psycho Gill, Uncle Dimitri is no different from the rest of the family. If anything, he's worse. Uncle Dimitri sees his brother Gill as a genetic embarrassment, a reflection of their own convoluted gene pool. This includes not just Uncle Dimitri, but his four perfect sons, all of whom he'd go to any lengths to protect. Yaya chomps around on dentures she forgot to glue down. They make a loose clackety noise. No matter what I think she might be leaving out, I back off. She's unhinged. I can see that. I squeeze, I squeeze strength into her bony hand. In less than one day, she's lost that too. Lola, Uncle Dimitri's girlfriend, rides in the front. Since moving in with Uncle Dimitri, she's quit her job serving drinks and now serves only him. From answering the phones at the office to riding with him to the track after hours, they're inseparable. This is your call, Paula, Uncle Dimitri declares, his eyes on the next exit. He triggers the blinker. After getting in the BMW with him, I've noticed a careful detachment about his brother's death, and I guess for him there is no other way. Pick out whatever casket and flowers you see fit. You're Paul's next to kin, even before your brother and sister. We all know that. That's right, pipes in Lola. She's dabbing on lip gloss in the visor mirror. The two of you were like a little team. The value must finally be taking effect because there is no other explanation why I find some consolation in an outsider like Lola being able to pin down in one line the complicated relationship between me and my father. Thanks.
That was amazing, wow. Um, so great to see all of you out. Thank you. It's great to read with you, Paula. And let's see. Um, the only thing you should know, uh, this my novel is a dual narrative, but I'm just going to read from one section, and it's um, a section where my character Avery is going to Palm Springs for the first time. These rich girls in her dorm have kind of convinced her to go to Palm Springs, even though she's totally broke and she can't really afford it. She's trying to keep up with the Joneses. Um, <laughs> And also, kind of funny, two of my roommates from USC are sitting in the audience. Um, Mimi and Sabrina. Um, but they're not the women in this story. Just to clarify that. We were all equally broke in college. Okay. When we get to the hotel, it's all totally wor worth it. Gorgeous. A view of the hills and green all around the pool with huge palm trees that look like they're sparkling whenever there's a breeze. White deck chairs are all on all four sides of the pool and there are four bungalows facing each other. Sliding glass doors let us out to the pool and first thing, Adelaide and Nurse are practically naked. Bikinis, even though they're supposed to be cows. I swear, I, I wear shorts and a long white t-shirt that cover the shorts. Grandma Nurse says, shit, you don't have a swimsuit? Damn, wear some more clothes, Laura Ingalls, Adelaide says. Where's your fucking bonnet? No, I say, no swimsuit, not since the fifth grade. But you don't want to get in the water, nurse says? Yeah, Adelaide says. No, I'm not getting in the water. I don't really like it, I say. And why do they like the water so much? It's good if it's hot, but after that. But they won't shut up about it. Even if, even if I wanted to, there's my hair. If it gets wet, I have to pull all the jerry curl spray in it to moisturize it all over again, and I just don't want to be thinking of hair, so I just tune them out. I put on my Walkman headphones and listen to Squeeze, humming, tempted by the fruit of another, tempted but the truth is discovered, feeling the hot air blow across my body like somebody's hot breath in my face and on my neck and across my legs. I close my eyes and dream, and sweat runs down the sides of my face and into my t-shirt. I think, I am, on palm, I am on spring break in Palm Springs, like a regular college girl. The heat takes me in and out of sleep. I keep my eyes shut, seeing the black and the red of my eyelids, smears of yellow, music in my ears, feeling like rubber from the vodka and wine coolers. It seems like hours and hours pass, and then my eyelids go completely black. Someone is blocking the sun. Ladies, this guy says. He's got two beers in his hands, Coronas with lime. He holds them out to nurse in Adelaide. They look at each other and roll their eyes. But if they don't want the beer, I'll take it. I'll take a beer from this guy. <laughs> my name is Rob, he says. He puts the beer down on the pavement and crouches down. He balances himself perfectly on his feet, his hands on his knees. His hair is sticking straight up and is white in places like he streaked it or the sun bleached it. His face is peeling a little bit, but he still looks good to me, even though his eyes are covered by Ray-Bans. But then he pushes them up over his head. His eyes are gray and his eyebrows are bleached too. He looks like he surfs, like you'd see him in a Gidget movie, some 50s guy, that's what he looks like. He goes, you guys party? 
No, nurse says, we don't. Look at me, I'm thinking, look at me, look at me, ask. <laughs> I'll just leave these here then, Rob says, just in case. Uh-huh, nurse says. Thanks, Adelaide says, and flicks her hand at his back when he turns away like, shoo, you bother me. You guys, I say, you guys are cold. Why'd you shine him like that? He talked to us wearing sunglasses, Adelaide says. I couldn't even see his face at first. She sits up and splits her ponytail in two pieces to tighten the rubber band. She lies back down. She says, I'm supposed to take a beer from some dude who doesn't even know that he's supposed to take off his sunglasses when he's talking to people? Please. And then he brings just two beers? There's three of us. <laughs> Asshole. No class whatsoever. <laughs> he was cute, though, nurse says. She shields her eyes and looks over at the group of people he's with, all dudes. Yeah, I say, I liked his eyes. Adelaide sits up and looks at me. She gets up and stretches, and the lines from the chair make a pattern all over her butt and back. She's wearing a black bikini that's sagging in the ass, but she won't eat anything, ever. She puts her hands on her hips and points her chin at Rob's group. Too bad they don't have any brothers for you, Ave. We need to find you a brother on this trip. If I were a black dude, I would totally go for you. <laughs> Why? Because, Adelaide says. She squirts some band de soleil on her hands and rubs it all over her stomach and legs. She pulls her sunglasses down over her face, and I can't see her eyes. She says, you're cute. Nice eyes, nice smile, totally mellow. She stops talking, and then she says, you know. But I don't know. Only black guys like nice smiles and nice eyes and mellow girls? I drink some more vodka and orange juice, another cooler. I keep my sunglasses on and look at everybody lying around and swimming and drinking. There are no black guys. There are no black girls. There's only me. I just keep sleeping and drinking and listening to music, Joy Division, The Smiths, Elvis Costello, Nick Kershaw. Time goes by fast and it goes by slow. The sun is going down and there's the breeze and I want to stay out here all night. I can just stay out here in this chair. But there aren't that many people out anymore. The ones out here are quiet and cooling off from cooking all day. And where is Nurse and Adelaide? Nothing in their chair but damp towels, like they used to be there but melted away, <laughs> evaporated, like I imagined them. Imaginary friends, I say laughing, that's so funny. I get up and get another wine cooler out of the igloo next to Adelaide's chair. I take it with me because I'm going to do something. A guy is sitting on the edge of the pool drinking a beer, so I get up and I go to him. I feel good like I'm floating. I can feel the hot concrete come up through my feet, travel up my legs, and then my face. I sit next to the guy close, put my legs in the water. Look, I say, isn't that trippy how your leg looks like it's almost in two pieces when you put it in the water? <laughs> he looks at my legs and then at me. He smiles, but just a little. He's dark, super tan, black curly hair and thick fingers that have hair all over them. What is he? Is he Italian or Greek or Mexican or something else I don't even know? He's not black, that I can tell. I put my hand in the water. I pull my hand out of the water and just stare at it. It looks like an old person's hand. I put my hand in the water again, and when I take it out, I dribble water up his leg. He looks at me funny with squinty eyes, and his head turned like James Dean does in Rebel Without a Cause. I'm Costas, he says. He looks at me hard like he's studying me. I'm Avery. 
Are you feeling good, Avery? <laughs> yes, I say, I am, I am Costas. <laughs> he nods at my t-shirt, it says Trojans. What year, he asks. Freshman, senior, I say. Go Trojans, I say, and punch my fists in the air. He laughs, I guess, he says. He peels a little bit of the label off his beer, drinks some, and then he puts it back down. I like Costas. He's golden, I swear to God. And his hair is making these tight waves all over his head, like shiny brown bows all over. I lean into him and smell coconut. I kiss him on the cheek. He leans away from me. Man, he says, Avery, you're wasted, girl. <laughs> yes, I say. I like it, though. <laughs> He shakes his head and I put my hands on his thigh and he looks at my hand for a long, long time. I move my hand up a little bit just to see what he'll do. There's nothing bad he can do to me. Maybe say stop and that's not going to kill me. <laughs> I'm not wondering if he thinks I'm cute because I think he's cute. That's all that counts right now. He doesn't take my hand off. He stares straight ahead at the hills, all rocky and orange. The tip of my finger is underneath his shorts. Check out my boy Costas, someone yells behind us, getting him some chocolate. He turns to yell at the guy, and when he does, my hand falls off his leg. You idiot, he says over his shoulder, you fool. He stands up, and then he gets up and walks off toward my bungalow, but then he disappears. I don't want to sit at the pool all by myself with those jerks behind me, so I get up too. I walk toward my room. I'm about to pull on the sliding glass door when I hear someone behind me. Come here, Acosta says, and pulls me to the side of the bungalow, where it's dark and nobody can see us. He puts my face in his hands and kisses me. He says, you got nice lips. What were you trying to do back there? I don't know. I rub the front of his shorts. Shit, he says, okay. <laughs> he sticks his hand underneath my t-shirt and fills my boob and I slide down the wall. My legs won't let me stand up again. I think for two seconds. I hear mom telling me to keep my legs closed, but my legs want to be wide open. <laughs> Let's do what I say. Let's do it. Slow down, girl. He kneels down and holds my face again. He stares into my eyes. Fuck, he says, you're just too drunk. I'm not doing that. That'd be fucked up. I'm not that drunk, I say. <laughs> He's hard and I touch him. He takes a deep breath. I say, I swear I'm not that drunk. <laughs> okay, he says. He looks around. You can suck my dick, but that's it. Here, he says, and lies down on his back. He pulls down his shorts. I kneel over him, thinking, after this, he'll be so into me. After this, even though I don't know what I'm doing. He talks to me the whole time. Don't just lick it, he says. Move your head up and down. Watch the teeth, though. And use your hands, too. But not that hard, though. No, that's too gentle. A little hard, yeah. Yeah, like that. He's moaning, he's saying yes, and he's coming, and I don't know what to do, so I swallow. I'm still kneeling over him, and I smile. He puts his fist to his forehead and stares up at me. He says, you didn't know what you were doing, did you? <laughs> no, I say, I never did that before. He sits up, pulls up his shorts, looks at me like he's almost mad at me. Don't tell me you're some kind of virgin or some crazy thing. I am, I say. What are you, crazy? That's what you want? Some guy you don't know on the side of a hotel room, drunk? I don't care about that, I say. He shakes his head. Then I'm glad. I'm glad we didn't do that. And be glad I'm not a grade-A asshole either. You're nice, I say. I like you. 
He smiles at me. He slaps my face like those Italians in The Godfather, and then he strokes it. You're a trippy girl, he says. Let's get you to your room. We walk around the corner, but when I pull on the sliding glass door, it's locked. I pound on it, and Nurse pulls it open. She looks at me and frowns at Costas. She's better now, Costas says, but she was kind of trashed. I'm fine, I say. Fine, fine, fine. Thanks, Nurse says, and pulls me in. Peace out, she says to Costas. But she doesn't smile, and she slides the door so hard the glass wobbles. There's some guy in bed with Adelaide, passed out. I can't believe they didn't wake up when Nurse slammed the door. Who's that? I walk closer to the bed so I can see his face. Cute. He's cute. It's the surfer dude from earlier. I whisper, I thought he was an idiot. I thought he didn't have class. Nurse cracks open a 7-Up and sits cross-legged in a chair. His dad knows her dad, it turns out. Fraternity brothers at SC from a million years ago. He's loaded, too. Well, his dad is, anyway. But what about him not having class? What about the two beers instead of three? That was before, I guess, Nurse says, and rolls her eyes. True love. <laughs> Who is that dude? She slurps her 7-Up loud, and Adelaide turns over. She turns over for the slurping sound, but not the door. <laughs> Nurse says, please don't tell me you did it with him. No, I didn't, I say. Good, thank God. It was just a blowjob, I say. <laughs> Nurse slaps her head. You're not even going to remember it in the morning, trust me. Yes, I will, I say. I'm going to remember this for a long time. <laughs> he liked me, I say, and he wasn't a brother. Yeah, but what was he, like Turkish or something? A Jew? Turkish? I don't even know what that is. I shrug. He looks white to me. Yeah, nurse says, but not white white. Well, what's the difference? I don't know, nurse says, but still, maybe he's Italian or Greek or something. But that's white, no? Nurse turns up her palms like, what do you want me to do about it? Okay, she says, congratulations, he's white. I'm going outside. She slams the door behind her, trying to wake up Adelaide, I'm sure. But they're totally dead. They look like a little prince and princess sleeping in those sheets, like in one of those Hans Christian Andersen stories I loved when I was a kid. They're in their own special little world. They're a fairy tale. Thank you. Oh, how wonderfully well done, both of you. Um, now, I'm sure you're all dying to ask a ton of questions. Come on up here. Does anybody have any questions? I told Paula we could be girl a girl group. Yeah, up we're here. gonna share it. <laughs> Hi. I think this is still important. Um, we both write about alienation and kind of surviving in uh, a social a social sphere of deep alienation. So I'm wondering, can you articulate more your vision of hope and survival and how how you arrive at that peace? Hmm. Or if there is peace. <laughs> I know that's a hard 
That is a hard question, but I would say that part of the thing I'm trying to ask people to do in the novel is to just kind of let people be what and who they are. Therein lies the piece, and so there's a lot of categorization going on in the novel where, in the section I read, people are deciding what Avery is and what she should be and how she should act, and that's crazy making. So it's like, just uh, let me be who I am and let you be who you are, and the nuances of identity are so complicated and we just don't really allow for that even though we say we do. So that's kind of where I'm hoping to get peace. Well, um, that's really beautiful. Thank you. The, uh, the other day I did a phone interview with this radio host and I've done a few since my book just came out a couple weeks ago and um, they've never read the book. So they ask these really broad, vague questions and I can do whatever I want and say whatever I want. So it was very freeing. And three or four minutes before I'm supposed to go on with this guy, I, I call him up and he says, okay, I read your book over the weekend. I went, oh shit, <laughs> you actually read it. And he says, and what I want to do is I want to talk about how you've been defined by the men in your life. And I, oh, God, really? And I acted, I pretended, okay, great. And he pulled, about 10 minutes into the interview, he pulled a line where it's this, it's this really um, emotional scene where I'm in the car with my father, my mother has just left and taken my brother, my little brother and my older sister all the way to our second home in Tennessee. I'm there with my father. I'm not passing my classes. This boy that I was just totally crushing on says, you know what, I really like you. He was the captain of the baseball team. And he said, but what I want to do is I want to see you on the side. <laughs> and he was going to see the head cheerleader, but see me on the side, and I was supposed to be happy with that because I wasn't popular because I barely went to school. Anybody hardly knew me. And um, so I was just devastated, and I wasn't doing well in one of my classes. I was failing one of these classes, and I was just really upset, and I'm in the car, and my father, we're driving down the freeway, and my father slams the brakes in the emergency lane and he says you don't know how strong you really are and he was he was really upset and really angry and the cars are nearly hitting us and the windows rattling my passenger side is rattling and um, he really defined me and he made me a lot stronger and I can face just about anything and anybody, and I don't care if people like me or not. It means nothing anymore. And I think he emboldened me in a lot of ways. And in answering your question, it's kind of brought me independence and peace to be able to be a strong woman and not have to worry about what people think about me. So I hope that answered your question. Mm -hmm. Oh, the Cuban bombshell? Yeah. <laughs> oh, thank you. I have a question for you. Towards the end, uh, Avery, older Avery, talks about 
um, how her and Keith were almost exactly the same when they were younger, and and then they obviously turned into completely different people. Mm -hmm. Did you mean? I thought that was really interesting and almost like your adolescence. Maybe things are luck, or it's the decisions that you make that completely change your life. What? Where were you coming from? Um, all of that. Um, thank you. Yeah, this luck and I think gender had a lot to do with it. Part of the things I was just, one of the things I was discussing in the book is gender and kind of how, because Avery's a girl, she's policed a lot more, so she's like, you know, she's trained to stay out of trouble. And Keith, because he's a guy, there's sort of already the, a, a young black man, no less, that there's already this assumption that he's some sort of fuck up and it's inevitable and so genders informing them the fact that one person grows up with a, uh, two parents rather than one but but we start out the same and then life ends up kind of informing how we turn out because of all this stuff that, yeah yeah oh, oh hi hello good thank you is this based loosely on your life at all? Or you went from, because it's based a lot on my life, because I'm born and raised in LA too. And when you're talking about the environment being raised in a almost the opposite, I was raised in a predominantly white area. Going over to, into the area that she, the, the character Nathan leaves, I had had very little experience. Oh. So I was actually the reverse of that. But the identity part, which age is struggling so hard with, is very much part of what I grew up with. Yeah, I mean, there are some obvious similarities to me in the cat, like, you know, USC and all of this stuff. And we did, we moved from 80th in Vermont to West Covina, like my character. So, yeah, there was that. And the funny thing about LA is that it's so big. And these neighborhoods are up against each other, but they're so, like, just half hour up the road was very different. And so just kind of negotiating all of that is a dream. Because in Avalon, we moved to work in Oh, wow. Yeah. That's how big of a job. So that's why I'm yeah. meeting. I've already read most of the books. So I was like, yeah, I believe how much this relates to my life. Oh, thanks. Good. Yeah. Good. Well, Dan, my question kind of follows directly from that, which okay. was just how did it feel to go back and think about L.A.? Hmm. to write because like one of my favorite scenes in the book is to go into the Dodgers game right you know but to think about you know sort of 30 25 30 years ago to do it from today I mean how did you sort of reconceptualize your own relationship to Los Angeles and uh, did it did anything surprise you about how you were feeling about that um, I don't think, I think I carry all of that with me all the time, which is part of the reason why I chose that dual narrative, because it's not history really, it's sort of already always here, and so, and that's what I wanted to talk about, how the past and the present are kind of bumping up against each other all the time. And then there was a lot of research I, I had to do, and I hate research. <laughs> and just, I mean, all the baseball stuff, just kind of remembering who was scoring how, and who was on the team, at what point, and in the galleys I screwed up and had Fernando Valenzuela playing with Don Sutton, which was wrong, like they wouldn't have, I know. So I had to fix that, but I remembered things differently. My memory was incorrect, so, so there was research too.
I'm doing all that. You should point to. I'm doing all the pointing. To I was just curious. You have such a wonderful ear. I mean, it's just amazing. And I wondered um, when you read uh, whether you uh, pick up immediately whether someone has a kind of ear, and whether you hear that, that much in contemporary fiction, people that have a really good ear. Yeah, um, that's. I am glad you asked that because I voice is one of my favorite things to kind of see in fiction, and I get really frustrated when I read uh, novels and short stories wherein there's like six different characters and they all sound the same. And I just think, come on, like work a little harder. Like we're not, all of us speak very differently in this room, and I think writers tend not to do that. They're trying to sound literary, and so they all the characters sound the same, and I hate that. So, so do, okay. do you feel like, do you have um, feelings like things that you think, oh, I'd like to try to get that, or do you, do you sense that kind of gift and, and you could feel drawn to be able to try to get certain things? Yeah, I always... Uh, I never stop listening. I'm always paying attention to how people... Sp I'm obsessed with it in case. If you read my short story collection, you would see that. And, and the novel, just kind of how people speak and what that says about the person or what we think, rather, it says about the person is so interesting to me. And so I'm always paying attention. There was... Um, I, I was at this event called Book Plates and with another writer, and he was talking about how he went off to write alone in this like very you know just like being a hermit and writing and I was like so boring like I like being out in the world and hearing people like scream at each other or, like talk about their bad dates and like think about how they're sounding and writing that down all the time that's so interesting to me as opposed to just kind of sitting in a closet and not hearing anything that's not how I like to write so Was it difficult? It, well, it's a memoir, and and uh, yeah, it was it was very difficult getting started. Um, the phone call that I mentioned in the prologue that haunted me for a lot of years, and I wouldn't face it. It just was there, and there were some things that I had done that even my husband doesn't know I, I had done. And I thought, do I really want to share all of this? And I, I realized it, I came to a point where I did, and I wanted to piece things together. And one of the things I did, it's I see it as kind of like a dual narrative. I have, I have a linear story. It begins with a prologue, but then it tells a linear story about growing up with my defense attorney father, Greek father. And then I have these sections titled What They Told Me After He Died. And they're little pieces of quotes that I gathered from family members, from his clients, from people, a lot of shady people who knew him. And I want the reader to participate in the story. And so they're able to piece together what happened to him along with me. Because I think a lot of writers tend to spoon feed too much information to readers because they assume the readers won't get it. And I don't know if it's the editor's fault or whose fault it is, but I think readers are smarter than that. Children of Nazis and how they live in Germany and 
how they are positioned in history from the state of grace. And I, today I'm thinking about the family of the shooter. And I'm really more interested in these stories, I think. Um, and so I find your context very interesting. I wonder if you are influenced by any writing that you read or how you could see your position as, as a I, well, one of my biggest influences was the memoir, The Glass Castle, by Jeanette Walls. And I met her, and I was so happy to see she was nice, not a bitch, <laughs> because she's such a mega, mega seller. And she sold millions upon millions, and it was I was so relieved to find she was a nice, you know, down-to-earth woman. And... Um, totally not pretentious whatsoever but I was really inspired by her book because she wasn't a victim she didn't play that you know that whole men have been bad to me I gotta go you know take it to the bottle and I'm a victim and all of that kind of stuff she didn't do any of that she just took it on that's my story and that's my family and I still love them and um, I read her book and I was really really inspired and so that helped me go, okay, I can do this too. You know, I can do it my way. And I did it my way. And there were there were a few people who said, Don't don't do it this way. Why are you structuring these quotes? What are you doing? Um, but that's the way I saw it. And I started with the prologue. I wanted to start with access what's haunted me. And then I wanted the reader to participate. And so I structured it that way. And um, I knew I just knew that was the right way to write it. Yeah, it has, and and I loved. There were parts where I loved to re relive life with my father again, because he was a really funny. There were I I don't mention it. I don't think in the in what I'd read, but he was very very funny, and he was really charming, and he did crazy crazy things. Um, there's one there's one section in the book where we were we were coming home, and these burglars were coming out our front door with all of our loot on our dining room table. And it was a Mexican guy and it was a white guy. And they were coming out. And my dad is big Greek and he looked like he could have been an assassin or something, a really big mafia guy. And um, he says, what the hell are you doing? And the one guy looks at the other guy and says, it's okay. My friend, he lives here. And my dad, my dad, I'll never forget this, but my dad cocked his head like, you know, a dog hearing a high frequency, like, what? Okay. And he said, no, he doesn't. He said, I'm going to kick your fucking ass. And then he called him this Greek curse word. And I won't say what it means, but it was really bad. It was worse than the F word. But, um, and then he took a swipe at the one guy and grazed his chin and then he took off they were both half his age he chased them both into the bushes screaming come out I'm gonna kick your ass and um, that was the end of that but <laughs> but it's just so funny and and I got to relive that memory and I got to relive all these really fantastic memories and I and also the bad ones but but it gave me some I don't know it, it just brought me closer to him and so in that I was really grateful and then I also have it as a record of my family. Was that love there before you started? 
Oh yeah, it's it's complicated. But I mean, hmm. Oh, love for my father. Yeah, I didn't think it was possible, but when he died, it's in the book. But I said something effective. You couldn't take anyone closer to me because I loved him more than everyone. And so I didn't know what to do with myself when he died. I just took the one I loved more than anybody, all of them together. So it was really difficult. But yeah, I, I found some, I wouldn't say closure, I would just say I found my memories again with him. What made you want to share those specific passages that you read tonight over all the other parts of your books? Your blowjob scene. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a blowjob like, scene. Right? Just like cheap thrills for everybody tonight, you know. <laughs> it was thrilling to me, so. Well, I just, I thought the section that I read uh, would just give you a sense of uh, all the stuff I was trying, you know, like Palm Springs is California, and then there's race and there's class. It's like trying to get it all in there, <laughs> and the blowjobs. <laughs> oh, that's a hard. I don't know. I'm I'm working. I in, but I can't articulate it. Speaking of blowjobs, mine mine is about crimes of passion. Ooh. So yeah, there is a blowjob at least one. <laughs> and somebody, you know, gets killed afterwards. Just a minute to get these chairs out of the way. And if you'd like your book signed, please um, line up right along here. It's best if you buy them first. And also stay and mingle and enjoy all of the festivities we have to offer. Oh, really?